Well, you can keep that uh, page open if you like, or if you'd like to open up your Bibles to Psalm 96, whichever you pr- prefer, you can feel free to do so. That's going to be our passage we're studying this morning. And um, I love the Psalms. Um, for one thing, when I'm preaching, um, it's easier for me than going in the middle of a book somewhere, having not done an entire book study as Pastor Reed often does, but also because the Psalms just express such a variety of motions. We were telling our children uh, a few nights ago as we were reading uh, one of the Psalms together before bedtime that the Psalms are real. The Psalms don't just picture everything as rosy and perfect all of the time. We certainly have a Psalm of praise before us, which is what we're going to be studying. But I also appreciate it as your song this morning because that's very much also an emotion of some of the Psalms as you think of, of the one that begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And even those psalms can show us how to grieve well and lead us from a place of grieving to ultimately rejoicing in God. So no matter what you're feeling, you can turn to the psalms and they can guide you through whatever you're feeling. This morning, however, we have a song of great praise. It's an amazing text of celebration. It's one that's well known and perhaps a favorite of some. It's a song of praise to God. It's a psalm that is so glorious in and of itself I'm actually kind of scared to preach it to you because I don't want to make it any more, more dull than, than as it is jubilant on its own. So in place of some sort of opening story or illustration, I'm just going to get to the main idea outright so that I don't risk losing the joy of this passage. The main idea of, of the text in front of us is that we have a God who is so majestic, so beautiful, so mighty, so glorious, so holy and righteous that our response should be nothing less than to declare his name throughout the entire earth. We have a God that's so mighty, so powerful, so glorious, that there's no lesser response that we should have than to declare his name throughout the entire earth. The church, the nations, and even the animals and the trees, all of creation, are summoned in this passage to praise the Lord. And were it possible, the author of this psalm would desire that all of, of creation would erupt in one worldwide celebration of who God is, all that he has done, and all that he will do. We serve a God that is all-powerful, all-knowing, majestic beyond anything we could ever imagine, infinite in wisdom and strength and love and abounding in steadfast mercy and faithfulness. And the entire universe is commanded here to worship and glorify the one who is worthy of every possible praise. So we are called to this action this morning. We are included in this command to sing, to declare, ascribe to, and worship our God. So as we study this passage this morning, I would encourage you that as we learn these words and learn what they mean and study it in depth, that we not forget the ultimate application of what this passage is about, and that is for us to praise our God. And so don't leave here without having doing that, done that. And, and don't forget to do that even as you leave this building today to praise the Lord, to glorify his name. Because if we study it in depth and tear it apart and analyze it for all its detail and yet fail to praise the Lord, we'll miss the entire point. So let's just start here in Psalm 96, verses 1 through 3. Again, I hope you have your Bibles open or at least the, uh, the bulletin in front of you because we're going to go through this part section uh, by section. Verses 1 through 3 is where we'll start. It says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. 
Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. So my first observation is this. It is worthwhile for us to be here this morning. We have in front of us a command to praise, a command to recognize God and to sing his praises before everyone. And so we are here this morning, yes, to open up the word of God, but also to sing. Singing has value in and of itself. We are commanded to sing. So the singing in our worship service, in case you've ever wondered, isn't just filler to bide our time until we get to the main part that we're all here for. Singing is commanded by God, and we are uh, charged in this psalm to sing his praises. Why? Because singing stirs up emotions in our hearts in ways that are different than just study or ways um, that other activities uh, might not do in the exact same way. God has commanded us to use our, our entirety of our, of our senses, our, our thoughts, our emotions, everything, all together as one to worship and praise God. And so this is valuable that we do this this morning. It's valuable that we sang a hymn this morning or the praise songs or the hymn that we're going to conclude our service with. It is our means of praising the Lord in all that he is and all that he will do. But my second observation is this, that not only are we commanded to sing, but specifically it tells us to sing a new song. What does that mean? What does it mean to sing a new song? Well, I think more in this, there's more in this command than just you know, singing brand new songs all the time. It's not just saying, okay, make sure you write a new song every week and then that, that'll fulfill the command. No, I, I think that could be included in it, but I, I think there's more to it than that. When it says sing a new song to the Lord, I think we could understand it at least three different ways. Number one, when it says that, I believe it means sing with a new reason to praise the Lord every day. And of course, we can retell all the things that God has done in our lives, and we should. Of course, the Psalms do that very thing. They tell about the Exodus and how God delivered them out of the Red Sea, across the Red Sea, away from the Egyptians, and, and all these past acts of God. And certainly we can recount the, the many things God has done for us. But we are also to sing with new reasons to praise the Lord, because we're not just stuck with the Exodus. We can tell that God has done many things throughout history, and even in our own lives, even in this past week, you should have new reasons to be able to praise God today than you did last week. Even in the midst of difficult times, it's possible for us to remember that God is good, and every new day is a new reason for us to praise God. Number two, I think to sing a new song means also that we should continue to praise God for everything that we already know to be true, as if they are already new again. Um, because in fact they are, as the scriptures say, new every morning. Lamentations 3.22, you don't have to turn there, but it says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now that's not something new. That's not something that... God has just become faithful today, that it's a new thing for us to praise. But it's saying that his mercies, those things that we know to be true every single day, are new every morning for us. And so each day when we wake up in the morning, we can give thanks anew for those things that we celebrated yesterday or the last week or the last month because they are new to us every morning. Third thing I think we can gather from this is that we sing a new song in that we sing with new expressions of worship, with renewed vigor when we worship. That means we don't just come into this building and repeat dryly the same words to the hymns or choruses or whatever songs that we sing, uh, even if we've sung them a thousand times. 
For in either of those cases, our worship can just turn into going through the motions if we're not careful. We can just arrive here and, okay, we open up our hymnal or we open up our bulletin and hear the words and these are the things that we're used to singing and I've sung these songs before and it can just become very rote for us. It can just become something that we've done a million times before. But it's saying, sing a new song. Sing as if it's the first time you've ever sung it. Sing it as if these are new truths to you, as as if you're hearing these words for the first time. Sing a new song to the Lord, because again, his mercies are new every single morning. So we have this command to sing, right? But aside from just this command to sing, there are many other verbs that are found in this entire passage. It doesn't just stop with singing. And that's not the entirety of the psalm. In fact, if you're somebody who likes to circle things, mark up your Bible, here's a great way to do it. Because this this week I was really struggling to know how to break down the psalm, how to analyze it. And I think there are two things you could highlight in your Bible if you like to highlight or underline. Number one, you can go through your, your text, and you can even do this now if you want to, and circle all of the action verbs that are found here in this particular psalm. So you see there's sing, there's also declare, There's tell, there's worship, all these different things that we are commanded to do. Another way that you could look at this psalm is then to go in some other fashion, maybe highlight or draw a box around it or whatever you want to do, is to highlight all the reasons why we are to do those specific actions. So we're to worship, we're to declare, to sing God's praises, and you'll find a ton of different words in this particular psalm. But you'll also find just as many reasons as to why God is worthy of all those different things. And so we're starting with singing, but it's going to go on from there. Beyond just singing, this call to worship God involves um, telling and declaring. Look at verse 2 and 3. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. There's another verb that you could circle if you want to. Bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. So you see there you have sing, you have bless, tell, declare, all these words just getting started here. But you notice it moves beyond singing. So we're to tell other people of what God has done. As you look at this beginning of list of these verbs, there are over 15 of them, by the way, these different commands. But here we have uh, bless, declare, um, tell, all these different things. Um, you know, we are to tell each other what God has done in our lives. And I'm not just talking about in this service, because you could say, well, we fulfill that every time that we sing, or we recite this scripture together, or we're in this building. In this building, we're worshiping together corporately, and we're kind of doing that as a body. But I'm saying we should do more than that. We should go above and beyond just this service, and in our everyday conversation, tell and declare what God has done in our particular lives. Aside from singing, aside from this worship service, ask yourself, how often do you declare out loud to each other what God has done for you? How often do you give verbal praise to God in your everyday conversations? You know, we do a lot of things even under the umbrella of fellowship here as a church. We have many gatherings, many things that the youth do, many things that we as a congregation do. We have an opportunity to do that very thing on Saturday when we gather for our barn party. And fellowship is used in a very generic way, I think, when we gather together for a host of different things. But, you know, I found a very good definition of fellowship this week. Somebody shared it on Facebook, and I liked it a lot. A well-known pastor named Paul Washer said this. He said, fellowship is not when two saints get together. Fellowship is when two saints get together and talk about Jesus. 
And I like that. I like that definition a lot. And while it's possible to take that to an extreme and to get legalistic about it, I don't want to do that. But on the other hand, when I read that quote, it reminds me that, yeah, when we gather, it's not just shooting the breeze all the time and just talking about anything. Because then how are we different from the world? But, you know, seasoned into our conversation at some point, eventually, as we gather together, should be some conversation about this is what God has done in my life. This is how I I need prayer, brother or sister. I I need your help. I I need you to pray for me. These are the things I struggle with. These are the ways in which you could remember me. Uh, This is what God has done for me in this particular area of my life. This is a struggle I went through uh, for a long period of time, and I feel God's brought me through it. Or this is something where God is teaching me lessons. You know, how often do those kinds of things come into our conversation under the umbrella of fellowship? And maybe, just maybe, they should come in more often than they do currently. Fellowship is more than just getting together. It's bringing God into the picture as well. That's a way we can declare God's name to each other. Um, now, uh, as, as you uh, think about this in the context of life, I'm thinking about here just individual gatherings, but hopefully as you go throughout all of your life, as people remember you when you're older and everything like that, hopefully they will remember you as somebody who declares God's name in, as a part of what they do. If somebody says about you that, you know, I, this person was a devout Christian, but I didn't really hear about it much from them, or it didn't really come up much in conversation, then something's wrong. So maybe now is a good time for you to just analyze your life and say, okay, if I were to die today, you know, would people say, yeah, that person was a believer, but you wouldn't have really known about it, or it was something more of a private matter, or it was something that really didn't come up in conversation much. Maybe now would be a good time to analyze that and ask yourself, how often do I declare God's praises day by day and give him the credit that is due? Verse 3 says, declare his glory. But not just declare his glory now. Okay, We talked about declaring, telling, saying to one another. But it goes beyond that. It spreads outward. It says, declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works Among the peoples. So now I want you to pay attention not to the verbs, but who it's being directed to. Because now what started as a command to the church is now being pushed outward. And it's saying, declare that among the nations, among the peoples. I was really struggling this week. I don't know why. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. But the title, I always struggle with the title for a sermon. And I was going to call it, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Because I thought that would fit very well with this idea of telling among the nations. But then I thought to myself, no, I can't call it Go Tell It on the Mountain because then everybody's going to tell me afterwards we didn't sing Go Tell It on the Mountain. And, Pastor, you really should have sung Go Tell It on the Mountain. But then I thought if we sang Go Tell It on the Mountain, everybody would say, Pastor, it's not Christmas yet. Why are you singing Go Tell It on the Mountain? Anyway, pr- Pastor problems. Um, it's, it's no big deal. But Go Tell It on the Mountain would have been a really good title for this, I think, because it really is what this is about. It's saying we are to gl- declare his glory To who? Not just to us, not just to our friends, but also beyond that, to the nations, to the peoples. And if you're content just to praise God in this sanctuary, but nowhere else, then I'm telling you there's something wrong. There's something that you need to reevaluate, because it should go beyond here. If this is what you consider to be your time of praise and declaring, then I'm telling you it's not going far enough. We are commanded to go and to tell the nations and the peoples. And yes, that includes us, not only just those that we call missionaries that we send abroad. We need to tell the nations and the peoples. 
Now, I want to stop here for a second. I want to look at those two words, because when it says nations and peoples, there's actually a really cool thing going on here. Those two words are goy and am in the Hebrew language, and they mean two slightly different things. There's some overlap, uh, depending on where they're used in different contexts. But here's what I want to draw out from that. Here, when it says nations, it really is, I think, pointing us to specific boundaries and people groups contained in governments and things like that. So we're being told on one hand to go and declare God's glory to the nations, to the countries of the world. But beyond that, we're also being commanded to tell his glory to the people groups of the world. And you might say, well, Pastor Dave, aren't they the same thing? No, in fact, they're not. Because you might have many different people groups contained in one particular nation. So it's not just enough to say, okay, we're sending a missionary over to Tanzania, because who are you reaching in Tanzania? In fact, when our denomination started the Tanzania Project a few years ago, they didn't just uh, say, we're going over to Tanzania. Rather, they sent teams out, and they discovered that there are actually many, many people groups, unique people groups with different languages and different cultures and different folk religions that we need to meet uh, we need to meet and we need to talk to and evangelize. And if we reach one of these, they're not going to necessarily have any connection to the other group. So they found people like the Wasi or the Ndengareko people, which we sent uh, Matt and Suki Linsky uh, to that particular team. Um, there were all these different uh, groups, and I can't remember all of the different names, but um, the Alagua, that's one that came to, to mind. Um, all these different people groups, and there are many, many more. And so we are commanded not just to reach the nations, the countries, but also all peoples. So how does that work for us in Lebanon? Because you might say, well, we're not in a place with the Alagua or the Ndengareko or whatever. Um, we're in Lebanon. Isn't that one people group? Well, I would say no. No, there, there's definitely a Spanish-speaking community that you and I might not have as much connection to. I know there was um, a woman that came to move just a few doors down from us who was um, from another country. I can't remember which country she was from, but she was a Muslim, and she brought with her a very different kind of culture, and Sarah had some opportunities to interact with her, and that was a very different culture to learn. So even within Lebanon, we have different people groups. We have different cultures. We have different groups to reach, and God's glory is to go out to all of them, every single one. So we're to declare God's glory, but the question is why. Why are we commanded to do that? That's where verses 4 through 6 come in. So read along with me or follow along as I read. It says in verse 4, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, and strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So you see here, if you were circling originally, the verbs that we have as to what we are to do, and then the reasons as to why we are to praise God, you'll find that there are several different reasons that are commanded in this particular set of verses, four through six. For great is the Lord, there's one reason. He is greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. All the other gods are worthless idols, but why? The Lord made the heavens. That's another reason to praise him. Here's another, splendor, majesty, strength, Beauty, And it goes on and on. And these reasons aren't just contained to these particular verses, but they continue on and on. But they're, they're specifically packed into this section in a very special way. So we are to sing, we're to bless, we're to declare. Um, but we're to declare all of these attributes that we see. First one that we see is the greatness of God. It's so important that it's said twice. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is perfect. 
in every regard. What do, you, what do you mean when you say great? Well, great can mean any number of things. But in this particular section, I think of God's perfection. That every good quality you admire most in any human being you can think of, any role model that you might have, God is the perfect version of every one of those. He is the greatest being that has ever existed. Not only that, but he is great in that he is powerful. I love the ending of the book of Job where God speaks to Job in in chapter 38 and in verses 1 through 7. He says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the uh, whirlwind, excuse me, and he said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched a line in it? And what were its bases sunk? And who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and the sons of God shouted for joy. The idea here, and in the chapters that follow is that there is none like God. No one possesses powers such as he. Who controls the lightning? Who sets the planets in their orbits? Who has set the stars in place? Who has determined the infinite bounds of the universe? None but God. And I was standing outside uh, of the church just this week, actually, the, the brief moment in which it, when, when it rained on Friday, and, uh, and I heard it coming down, and I, I looked out my window, and so I just walked out the bottom exit downstairs in the lower level, and it was just pouring at that particular time. It was just one of those moments where I looked around and realized, who in the world could do something like this? Who could send gallons of rain on the earth for miles and miles but God? No one. No one else in the world could but God. I have a God. We have a God who can do this and much more. God is amazing. God is great and greatly to be praised. He is powerful. Therefore, he is also to be feared, as it says. Not as somebody who's unpredictable or unloving, but as somebody who is infinitely more powerful than we are. All other gods are false, but our God made the heavens, it says. So if you go to verse 5, it's what it says. All other gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. There are all sorts of gods that exist in other religions today. And a lot of them profess to believe in a God. But if you look at the, the, the words of their sacred text, you'll find that their God is described in a very different way than our God is. Their God is not triune. In, in whatever religion you can think of, Jesus did not come as God's Son, as God incarnate into this world to rescue us from our sins and, and a host of other differences. And so while some might tell you that, oh, we just follow the same God, we believe the same God as you do, well, if God were the same, he wouldn't write different contradictory things about himself in different holy books. They can't all be right. God doesn't lie. So even though there are a bunch of things out in this world that would claim to be God, we worship the true God who made the heavens and the earth. In contrast to all others, our God actually hears us. Our God made the heavens. And if this is true, then it follows that all people of the earth need to know him. You know people spend a a tremendous amount of time studying various areas of expertise. Trying to study the stars, trying to understand the extent of the universe. There are people out there who spend a ton of time on these things, trying to study the past, how everything all came to be. Um, But how much more important is it than for us to tell those individuals and all of the earth about the one who made 
the universe, the one who created everything. If people spend their lives trying to study the minutia of the universe, how much more is it important for us to share the one who actually created it? The text gives us more reasons to praise him. Verse 6, splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Strength is one thing that we can understand. We have already said that God is mighty. I've said that already this morning. But understanding the full impact and significance of his splendor and his majesty, to me that's a little bit more difficult for me to picture. Because God is invisible. You can't see him. So how do you describe what God is like in terms of his splendor, his radiance, his beauty? The best I can do is to read the scripture to you. Because we do have some glimpses as to what God is like. And we find them at various parts in scripture. Ezekiel chapter 1 is one of these. It says, In the thirteenth year of the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, I was among the exiles in the Kibar Canal. And the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. This is Ezekiel seeing a vision of what God is like in a a small fashion. And then it says in verse 22, Over the heads of these living creatures that he saw, there was an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound like a tumult, like the sound of an army. And above the expanse over their heads was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward, from what had an appearance of his waist, I saw as if it was gleaning metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward, from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw there was the appearance of fire, and there was brightness all around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of the rain, So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. Those portions of of Scripture are some of my favorite. Portions like that, or or the ending of Job, which we already read a portion of. Or, even this morning, as we talked about Daniel 7, if you were in Sunday school, uh, Chris did a phenomenal job of explaining that, and it talked about the Ancient of Days. That's another portion I'd encourage you just to look over, where you see glimpses of God's glory. I could go on and on. You could go to Revelation 21 or 22, um, a host of other passages. But we'll stop there for time. The common thread of all these passages is that he is bright, he is glorious, he shines in such a way that human language fails to describe it. The authors try to use the best shining objects that they can think of in their time. They use objects such as gemstones, or they talk about gold. I'm telling you that I think these things are going to be even more radiant, more perfect, more shining, more glorious, more bright than anything we have ever seen. Anything that we can ever possibly imagine. They're using these close analogies as best they can. What God is like is infinitely better. Infinitely better. And because he is glorious, he is worthy of our praise. Go down to verse 7. We'll keep going through here as quickly as we can. The nations are called to ascribe worship to the Lord. It says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory do his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. And he will judge the peoples with equity. 
Another glorious section. Again, this, this speaks for itself. But a few observations I'm making here. First, as we move through this psalm, we see that what began as a call to the church now is a call to the nations. So we were called initially to praise God, to sing him in his sanctuary, to tell of his goodness. And then we were to tell the nations. And here, now it's the nations that are singing. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Okay, so now this is expanded. That leads me to my second observation, and that's this word ascribe. If you look here in this section, you'll see that is repeated a few times. Ascribe. That's a key part of our worship. And I'm not, again, I'm not talking about worship just in this building, but also as an individual act during the other six days of our week. What I mean is that we give God great glory just by ascribing him the glory and the credit that he is due him. Think of it this way. How many times do you credit something positive that has happened to you on your own skills or to luck or to coincidence maybe? We say things like, wow, the the weather really worked out for us today. Or maybe even the more neutral, things really went well for me today. I had a great day at work or at school or at home. And you see, it's not, this is not to negate the hard work that we do. It's not to negate the weather or any of the other factors involved. But how often do we say that it was God that answered my prayers today? God blessed us with wonderful weather for this wedding or for this tournament or this picnic or whatever. How often do we tell our children, God is the one that has provided a job for me or this house or a host of any other things? Kids, God is at work in our lives. That is part of what is meant by ascribing the glory and the credit that is due his name. There's a great illustration of this, and Sarah's been reading a book about Susanna Spurgeon this week. Um, She was the wife of Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher. There was a story in this book that talks about a time when Susanna was ill, and uh, her husband wanted to help her out. She struggled with a lot of different ailments and things throughout her life. Let me just read this um, part of this story to you. Um, It was at a time where she wasn't feeling well, and and he came to her and said, What can I bring you? What can I bring you? One day she replied playfully, without any serious intent, I should like an opal ring with a piping bullfinch. And a bullfinch is is a a bird, if you're not familiar. Spurgeon looked quite surprised, and he said, Ah, you know I can't get those for you. And he and his wife joked about that request several times for the next few days. But long story short, eventually, uh, Charles Spurgeon brought home a tiny box for his wife. And when she opened it, sure enough, it was an opal ring. But Charles had not purchased it for her. Rather, an older woman, who he had visited once, sent it to Charles and to the church. It was intended for him as a random act of thankfulness for his ministry. This woman had no knowledge of this prior conversation. What's even more amazing is that not long after that, Charles came home with a second gift. And it was the very bird that his wife had talked about this bullfinch. And uh, again, it wasn't something that he had gone out and purchased for her in response to this conversation. He instead had gone to visit a dying friend, and during that visit, the woman who he was visiting said, please take this bird with you. (laughs) Um, My husband isn't going to be able to take care of it when I'm gone, and I thought your wife might enjoy it while you were away on some of your travels. And again, it turned out to be the exact same bird 
that she had jokingly requested of him when he had asked earlier. Now, the point of the story isn't to say that God grants our every wish and desire, that I could just say, I want a million dollars, and a million dollars is going to appear out of nowhere. In fact, my point isn't about the gifts at all. Rather, my point is about how Susanna Spurgeon chose to react to these events. You see, after all this happened, someone remarked how this was such an amazing coincidence to them. But listen to the words she wrote in her diary. This is what she said. She said, Ah, dear friends, those of you who have been similarly indulged by God know of certainty that it was not. If our faith were stronger and our love more perfect, we should see far greater marvels than these in our lives. You see, that's what it means, just even in one example of everyday life, to ascribe to the Lord the works and the glory and the credit that's due his name. Don't call things coincidence. Use every opportunity that you have to tell of the goodness and the greatness of God. Last section that we'll go through here in the last minutes that we have. Verse 11, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. And I apologize, this part was cut off from the bottom inside your bulletin. The ending of verse 13 is this. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So, okay, here's two parts of this last section. We have verses 11 and 12, which is a command for all of creation to worship God. And then verse 13 this statement about him coming to judge the earth. But in this first section, it's calling all of creation to praise the Lord. All peoples of the earth were called originally, first the church, then the nations, and now all of creation, not just people, but the sea, the fish, the animals on land, the birds, even the field and the trees are called to praise the Lord. Romans 8, 19 talks a little bit about this. How is it that the trees are going to be praising God? How is it that all the animals of the earth are praising God? And the scripture tells us in Romans that this is something that creation has been awaiting. Not just us, but all of creation knows that there's something that is wrong about this world, that this world is not the way it's supposed to be and is longingly waiting for God to come back and judge the world. Romans 8.19 says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And I take that to mean that even animals will be a part of the new heavens and new earth. A reason that, why would animals eagerly long for something that they would never be a part of? But the point is that even in the earth, all the creation, all of the animals, all of the birds, the fish, everyone has a sense that things aren't right now and they are not the way they're supposed to be. All of us, all people, all animals, even the fields and the trees long for that day when God comes to judge the world. And so all creation is said to rejoice, is commanded to rejoice because one day he is coming. And that's the second part, the last part right here, verse 13. He's coming to judge the world. Before he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge in righteousness and the people in faithfulness. And you might say, why is that a good thing, to, to desire God to come and judge the world? Well, it's good because we know, for those of us who know Jesus as Savior, we know that we have nothing to fear. Romans 8.1 says, there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. I used to think, growing up, that you know, the way you get to heaven, it was like a scale, and that the good deeds were on one side, and the bad deeds are on the other, and 
You know, I, I used to worry, and you know, at night, I, when my life was over, where my bad deeds going to outweigh my good deeds, I didn't know. I didn't know if I got to heaven, how that judgment would turn out. Well, you know, what I didn't realize was that in the Bible, it says very clearly how God judges. And it says that none of us would ever earn God's righteous favor, a place in heaven, based on our own good deeds. One bad deed is enough to set the scales irreversibly in one direction. And the only way that we can be saved is through Jesus Christ's work on the cross, his death and his resurrection. So yes, it's a scary thing. If you're trying to base your righteousness, you're going to heaven on your own good works, then this idea about God coming to judge the earth is a scary thing. But if you've placed your life in, in the hand of Christ, knowing that he has forgiven you everything that you have ever done or will do, knowing that you are righteous in his sight, then you know you have, you have nothing to fear. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we wait for eagerly God coming to judge the world. Why? Because we're on his side. We're on his side. And he's going to judge and set right all of the evil and the wickedness that has ever taken place. It is a good thing. And for that, it is one final reason for us to rejoice. So what are we to do? Again, we've torn this apart. We've gotten into it in depth. But the main command for us this morning is to sing to the Lord a new song. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Spread his glory among the nations. Ascribe to him the glory and credit that is due his name. And rejoice. Why? For he comes. He comes to judge the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your holy name this morning. You are a God that is worthy of our time, worthy of our praise this morning. It is good and right for, he, for us to be here this morning to praise your holy name. May our praise not just stop within this building, but God help us to find opportunity and occasion, even in our own conversations with one another, to tell of your good works in our lives, to praise your name and your holiness and your character in our everyday speech. God, may our praise of your name extend even beyond the fellowship of believers but go out even to the all the nations and the people groups and all uh, individuals that we come into contact with in this life may we not be ashamed of the gospel and the good news that you are coming one day to judge the earth may we look forward to that great day those of us who are in Christ Jesus and those of us who are not may those come to place their faith in Jesus Christ then thereby knowing that there is nothing to fear in your coming to judge. God, thank you for your qualities, your, your character, your attributes, your holiness, your righteousness and power. We praise you for them this morning, and we praise you in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.